shall we bow our heads into uh, a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come and gather around your word, please prepare our hearts to be able to hear and to receive from you. Lord, I pray that you would anoint my lips and help me to speak forth your words of truth and help us all to be encouraged and, and built up and strengthened in our faith so that, Lord, we might be able to serve you more effectively. To the glory and to the honour of Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, if you'd like to open up your Bibles, please, to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 10. Sunday mornings when I'm going through the Bible, we're going through the book of Judges. And uh, last time in chapter 9, we were going through the account of Abimelech, the son of Gideon. Uh, and that was a massive 57 verses. Thank you for sticking with me through those 57 verses. You might rejoice to know that it's only 18 verses this morning. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be any shorter. Okay. Judges chapter 10. I'm sure we're all familiar with uh, the opening paragraph of The Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. And we see two halves being spoken of there. Wisdom, foolishness, belief, incredulity, light, darkness. And in many respects, this opening paragraph could be written about Judges chapter 10 because we've got a tale of two eras in this very chapter. The first era is verses 1 to 5 which is an era of peace. The second era is verses 6 to 18 to the end of the chapter which is an era of trouble. The era of peace verses 1 to 5 is under two judges Tola and Jair and the era of trouble is under two oppressors, the Philistines and the Ammonites. Uh, so verses 1 to 5 is the best of times. Verses 6 to 18 is the worst of times. Verses 1 to 5 is the epoch of belief. Uh, verses 6 to 18 is the epoch of incredulity. Verses 1 to 5 is the season of light. Verses 6 to 18 is the season of darkness. But despite the turbulent nature of Hebrew Israel's history, God remained the same. He was consistently faithful and reliable, whether it was the best of times or whether it was the worst of times. And indeed, whether you're facing the best of times or the worst of times, whether you are in a season of light or a season of darkness, God remains faithful and reliable. Let's start by reading verses 1 and 2. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he dwelt in Shamir in the mountains of Ephraim. He judged Israel twenty-three years, and he died and was buried in Shamir. So, the first two words are after Abimelech. The Lord had brought Israel into the promised land of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua, but there was compromise within the, the nation even before the death of Joshua. Tribes failed to appropriate all the Lord had given them, Tribes failed to drive out all the Canaanites they had been called to overpower. And after the death of Joshua, this compromise just simply grew. Tribes began to interact and even intermarry with the Canaanites. 
and then the tribes began to adopt their pagan gods and worship practices. This in turn, uh, this in turn broke the terms of the covenant Israel and the Lord had made. And in keeping with those terms, the Lord raised up an invading nation that oppressed Israel. And then what would happen in time, Israel would relent and cry out to the Lord for salvation, at which point the Lord would raise up a deliverer and they would lead an army against the oppressing nation and then live the rest of their lives judging the tribe or the region they occupied. Yet, when the judge died, Israel would return to their sinful ways and thus the cycle would begin all over again. And it's this cycle of sin and oppression, crying out to the Lord and deliverance that we see repeated over and over again in the book of Judges. Some of these judges coexisted but operated in different areas of the country, therefore a precise timeline is hard to establish. But the entire nation would typically be affected by a foreign invader, which suggests a, a complete national decline, the fact that God brought the judgment upon the entire nation. Uh, but it also shows us how one tribe's sin can infect an entire people group, the same that way that one person's sin can affect a whole family or a whole church. The sixth judge that we had been looking at was Gideon. He had delivered Israel from the Midianites and then he judged for 40 years. However, he left the nation in a poor moral condition. By the end of his life, he had led the nation back into idolatry and pagan worship. And he deflected people's worship from the tabernacle in Shiloh to an ephod in Ophrah. He also had a son named Abimelech through a Canaanite concubine. And Abimelech was a tyrant who murdered all of Gideon's offspring, bar Jotham, and then he appointed himself king. Abimelech was not a judge. He was a usurper of divine government and he exercised a three year reign of terror before being killed by a certain woman who dropped an upper millstone on his head. All the shame of it, being killed by a woman wielding a kitchen utensil. But that was Abimelech's fate. But here we come to Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he dwelt in Shamir in the mountains of Ephraim. And Tola is the seventh judge in the book of Judges. Tola was from the tribe of Issachar and uh, both the names Tola and Pua were common names in the ancestry of Issachar, which uh, may lead you to think a family name conferred a certain status, but uh, not so. Bishop Simon Patrick observes that the name Tola signifies or means worm and was probably given that name because when he was born, he was a very weak child, a worm and no man not likely to live. Tola lived in Shamir in Ephraim, outside his tribal territory, which suggested location. And while there are suggestions for where Shamir is, nobody really knows for certain. It seems to be something of an obscure location. And so in Tola, we have a man potentially born weak and not expected to live, dwelling away from home in obscurity. Yet God raised him up to judge Israel for 23 years. He then died and was buried. And that's about all that we know about this man, which is odd when compared to somebody like Samson, because Samson, uh, a, a man who was given 96 verses compared to Tola's two, 
judged Israel for three years less than Tola. But while Samson's life is marred by pride, compromise in serving God and a bad marriage, Tola quietly served the Lord faithfully. There is no sin or failure ascribed to his term as judge and he brought peace and stability to the lives of many. And it makes me ask the question this morning, what type of Christian are you? Are you a loud, brash show-off like Samson, someone who makes a lot of noise, but on closer examination is marred by compromise, pride and being married to the wrong things in life? Or are you a toler? Perhaps you feel weak. Perhaps you feel you won't amount to much. Perhaps you feel you live in obscurity. But you quietly and faithfully serve the Lord in what he has called you and gifted you to do. Maybe no great achievements are ascribed to you, but more importantly, no great sins and failures are either. Someone who, when they die, leaves a family, a church, a people who have known a greater period of peace and stability because of your influence. Tola was a man, a servant of men. Let's aim to be like Tola. Let's aim to do likewise and be a servant of men ourselves. Then we come on to Jair, verses three to five. After him arose Jair, a Gileadite, and he judged Israel 22 years. So one year less than uh, Tola. Now he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. They also had 30 towns which are called Havoth Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Camon. So Jair is the eighth judge and Jair was a Gileadite. Now this could mean that he came from a place called Gilead, of which there were two, but it's more probably his clan name. There was a clan called Gilead, uh, Gilead being a son of Mekia, Mekia being a son of Manasseh. And uh, Jair is the first Transjordan judge. That is, he came from the east side of the Jordan. The majority of the Israelite tribes were on the on the west side, but there were three tribes, Gad, Reuben, and the half tribe of Manasseh that settled settled on the Transjordan on the east uh, east side. So, and Jair is the first of two consecutive judges who were Gileadites. Jair, the eighth judge, and then we'll come to Jephthah, the ninth judge, the next time. And their terms as judges are separated by the fall of Israel into sin and idolatry. Between Jair and Jephthah, there is the Ammonite oppression. And uh, when we think about that, the fact that Israel fell into sin and idolatry and the Ammonite oppression came in following Jair's death, we can see that Jair's life served as a restraint against evil. His life and witness sustained the people, keeping them from falling into sin, and he held back God's judgment through the Ammonites. Now, if Tola was a man of obscurity, Jair is the complete opposite. First, we read he had 30 sons. This probably means he was polygamous, i.e. had more than one wife, which would have been a sign of status and wealth in life. Uh, but not necessarily so. He could have had 30 sons through one woman. Um, I was reading... Uh, uh, the other day about a couple called Fyodor and Valentina Vasilev. 
They were a Russian couple who lived in the 18th century. And according to the Guinness Book of Records, it lists them as having 69 children together, 67 of which survived infancy. Can you imagine that? One couple having 69 children. So it's not impossible that uh, uh, Jair had uh, 30 children with one wife, but uh, oh boy, do I pity that woman, I've got to say. But second, we read his sons rode on 30 donkeys. 30 sons rode 30 donkeys. And this is also a sign of status and wealth in life. Uh, the kings of Israel always rode on donkeys at their coronation. If you think about Jesus riding into Jerusalem, he rode in on a donkey, announcing he was a king. So donkeys were not beasts of burden as they are in our mindset. In Israel, they were the beasts of kings and nobility. So this suggests to us that Jair was somebody of nobility. Thirdly, we read his sons had 30 cities called Havoth Jair. 30 cities called Havoth Jair. Now, it doesn't mean they had a lack of imagination. They had 30 cities and they all called, all called them all Havoth Jair. What was probably happening here is that they had 30 towns, which when they came together made a city state called Havoth, Havoth Jair, which is uh, actually has happened in this country. I found out about this a couple of days ago when I was watching an episode of Only Connect, where it talks about Stoke-on-Trent. And I didn't know that Stoke-on-Trent is a city made up of six towns. And each of these six towns were potteries. And in 1910, these six towns were amalgamated into a city and a county borough. And it seems to me that this is probably what happened in Havoth Jair. Uh, 30 towns drawn together to make a city-state. So Jair, Jair was certainly a man that had land. So in Jair, we have a man with status and wealth, yet he was fruitful and multiplied. He reserved to restrain evil and he preserved his brethren with the exercise of the truth. And he left his sons with the means of travel and he established 30 cities. And when we compare Jair to somebody like Gideon, for example, Jair doesn't demonstrate the instability of Gideon. There's no record of ending bad like Gideon. He was consistent and faith and fruitful in serving the Lord. And he judged Israel for 22 years, during which time he rightly provided and protected the people. And again, it makes me ask the question, what type of Christian are you? Are you a Jair? Perhaps you have status or position at work or status or position in your family or some other station of life. Perhaps you have wealth. Certainly, if you live in England, you are among the wealthiest people in the world. But despite the status and the wealth, these have not stopped you from putting the Lord Jesus first in your life. And what type of legacy will you leave? Will you leave a legacy like Jair? Will you prove fruitful in sharing the gospel and thus potentially bringing forth many sons the same way that Jair brought forth many sons? Will you maintain your witness before men despite opposition and affliction? You know, when one man stands for Christ, it gives strength to 10 more men to do the same. But when one man compromises, it gives license for 100 men to do the same. Have you made the church a stronger, more fruitful place because of your influence? Jair was a servant of men. Let's, let us be like Jair as well. And so... 
the best of times comes to an end and the worst of times begins. And we read in verse six, then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. They were in the God market and they were buying. And any God that was going, Israel seemed to want to have a piece of. And here we see the cycle of sin and oppression and deliverance starting all over again. And the phrase, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, is repeated seven times in the book of Judges. That phrase, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, repeated seven times in the book of Judges. This shows us that Israel completed seven full cycles of oppression and deliverance during what is just over 300 years of history. And here in verse six, we see that Israel became backslidden. And with each cycle, their decline appears to have grown worse than before. The last cycle saw Israel serving Baal and Ashtaroth. This cycle sees Israel not only serving Baal and Ashtaroth, but also the gods of Syria, Sidon, Moab, Ammon and Philistia as well. They're going, going from bad to worse. And of course, the core of their sin was pursuing other gods, which is by our definition, idolatry. But in God's definition is adultery. Israel was married to Yahweh. And when she went whoring after other gods, she was committing adultery in God's eyes. And to make matters worse, we are told Israel did this in the sight of the Lord. It's one thing to commit adultery in secret, but when it's blatant so your spouse can see, it's something much darker and hard-hearted. And we can see the hardening within Israel through their conduct. And certainly in past generations, we saw the worship of Baal in tandem with the worship of Yahweh. There was some loose attempt to retain their Jewish roots. But in this generation, we read, they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. They were actually severing the tie with the Lord. And so in keeping with what I said with Tola and Jair, I asked the question, what type of Christian are you? Are you an Israel? Perhaps you have spent too much time pursuing your pleasures instead of the Lord. If so, that pleasure is an idol. Perhaps you have made excuses why you can't go to a church meeting. If so, that excuse is an idol. Perhaps you've allowed that TV box it, that social engagement, that book, that computer game, compromise your time with the Lord. If so, that compromise is an idol. Are you pursuing these idols in the plain sight of others? Are you doing evil in the sight of the Lord? If so, you are backslidden. And are you allowing your heart to grow hard in some area of your life? Are you severing the tie with the Lord? Israel was in decline and it would lead to oppression and misery. And I know from my own personal experience that a black backslidden Christian can never be truly happy. They feel an oppressive weight upon them, upon their hearts and upon their mind. Instinctively, they know that they are wasting their lives. Let's resolve to not do likewise. Let's resolve to not be an Israel. Let's set in our hearts and minds to be more like Tola and Jair. So let's see what happens as we enter this sixth cycle. Uh, verse seven. 
So the, angel, so the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. So the Lord's anger. First, we see the Lord's anger with Israel. And this anger is derived from the Lord's hatred of idolatry. It was a plague that stole his wife from him. And know this, anything in your life which is a threat to your communion with the Lord is something that the Lord hates. And it is something that the Lord will deal with in due course. The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And as a result, he sold them into the hand of the Philistines, into the hand of the people of Ammon. So we see that the Lord sells Israel into slavery. And that word sell there or sold is the same word used when Esau sold his birthright to Jacob. And it's the same word used when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. It is the direct opposite of the word redeem. You remember the Lord had formerly said to the children of Israel in Exodus 6, 6, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. God had formerly redeemed Israel from slavery. Now he's selling them back into slavery. In effect, he is saying, if you want the gods of the Philistines and the Ammonites, I'll give you completely over to the Philistines and the Ammonites. And this is a sober aspect of God's character. It's the same language Paul employed in Romans 1.24 when he said, Therefore God has also given them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts. If a man pursues sin vigorously, the Lord will sell him into slavery to that sin so that it dominates and oppresses and rules him. This is not a God to serve lightly. This is a God to be feared and revered. This is a God to be served sincerely. Let's not take our service to God lightly. And while the Lord sells Israel into slavery under the Philistines and the Ammonites, this slavery isn't uh, simultaneously simultaneous but consecutive. The Ammonite oppression happens in chapters 10 to 12. The Philistine oppression happens in chapters 13 to 16. So reading on in verse 8. From that year they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years. All the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites in Gilead. So the entire Transjordan group of tribes were harassed and oppressed. And it was not a short-lived thing. For 18 years they were raided and subjugated by the Ammonites. And I wonder, what did the Western tribes make of this? Did this raise concerns to the Western tribes? Did they put measures in place to, so that the same thing didn't happen to them? Did they make sure that they were right with the Lord so the same fate did not befall them? Well, let's read on. Verse 9. Moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah also, against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. I truly believe that if Judah, Ephraim and Benjamin were walking a righteous path, the Ammonite oppression would not have touched them. 
but because their lives were no better than Manasseh, the same fate befell them. Sadly, within churches and the Christian world, there is much compromise. Sin and immoral behaviour is covered up instead of exposed and dealt with. Worldly ideologies are adopted instead of biblical standards upheld. And whatever is financially beneficial is favoured over what is spiritually required. And as Christians, do we see this sin and compromise in the church? And if so, do we use this as an excuse to soften our witness and to think, well, we can compromise as well because those people down the street are compromising? Or do we put measures into place to guard ourselves, to distance ourselves from corrupting influences and then rededicate ourselves to the Lord, saying we will follow the Lord, we will follow his word, regardless of what anybody else does? We need to ally ourselves to scripture, to truth and to be living it. Otherwise, the same judgment that is and will befall other churches will befall us. The Bible describes churches as lampstands and God can and does remove lampstands. He warned Ephesus in the book of Revelation that he would remove that lampstand. And if you go to the place of Ephesus now, there is not a church there anymore. That church, that lampstand has been removed. And if we enter into sin and compromise and corruption, God will remove this lampstand in Maidstone. Moving on, verse 10. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. So here Israel makes its confession after 18 years. And it's both a confession for a sin of omission, we have forsaken our God, and a sin of commission, we have served the Baals. They're guilty of neglecting one thing and doing something that they should not. But it took 18 years for Israel to come to its senses. But is that not the same for us sometimes? When we are sin, sinful and backslidden, when we're out of fellowship, we sometimes in our folly, in our stupidity, linger in that sin, even though it brings us misery. And it can be so hard sometimes, can't it, to, to come to the Lord, to admit that you're wrong, to swallow your pride and to humble yourselves before the Lord and to repent and ask for forgiveness. But the longer that we put it off, the more pain we experience, and it needn't be like that. Yet what we see here is genuine repentance in Israel. Israel rightly identify their sin, and they rightly confess their sin. And when I think about repentance and genuine confession, I think all too often there is too much general repentance in Christianity today, whether it be mouthing the words of the confession in the Church of England or it be the private times of communion between ourselves and the Lord, how easy it is to adopt a self-penned liturgy. Have you not found that in your prayer life? You find yourself using the same words, the same vocabulary, praying in the same way that you always do and almost accidentally you routinely say sorry using the same methodology so that it becomes perfunctory instead of attentive and genuine. Let's make sure that our confession is genuine and not just uh, habitual and, and methodical. Name your sins. Enunciate where you have failed the Lord. Let him, even ask him to sift you, to convict you, to show you 
the areas that he wants to address in your life so that your repentance wouldn't be superficial, but it would be deeper. And as your repentance grows deeper, so the work of salvation will equally be deeper and then your communion with the Lord will grow deeper too. Verses 11 to 14. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines? Also the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Mayanites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. Now, the Lord's response to Israel may at first appear to be a rejection of their repentance, but not so. The Lord graciously heard Israel's prayer and the Lord kindly accepted and received their prayer. But he responds with a challenging and humbling message. And it is designed to make their repentance go deeper and to become more sincere. That the fellowship between he and them might be restored to a deeper level that Israel might be fully qualified and prepared for deliverance. Now, step one. Firstly, the Lord reminds Israel of the deliverance and salvation he had brought them in the past. He says, did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines? What he's saying is, I've proven myself strong and faithful in the past. Have I not proven myself steadfast and reliable? But then step two. Secondly, the Lord reminds Israel of their ingratitude. He says, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. They have not, Israel have not proven themselves strong and faithful. They have not proven themselves steadfast and reliable. Their conduct and character is in complete contrast to God's character. And then step three. Thirdly, the Lord shows Israel how he might justly abandon them to ruin. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress, he says. In other words, where are your gods now? If they are more worthy of worship than I, let them save you. And it can be the case when the Lord is at work in your lives, he can appear to be slow in coming to our aid, as he appears to be slow here coming to Israel's aid. But in our desperation, we reach out to all our pre-existing crutches and supports in life. When God doesn't come to immediately deliver us, we, we try the friendships and we try the relationships. We try our, our own effort. We try our finances. We try with all our ingenuity to use all our own pre-existing methods and means to get ourselves out of the situation. But as we do so, they all fail. They all fall. And one by one, they no longer stand. And only once we've tried everything else do we find that Jesus remains standing. And so we lean on him. And it's only then do we come to the realisation only Jesus can truly save us. He is the real deal. And then we understand that the Lord is not slow to act, but he is wise to delay. Reminds me of 2 Peter 3 verse 9 where it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfil his promise, as some count slowness. But he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This delay and this challenge by the Lord is to ensure that all would reach repentance, that the repentance was genuine and heartfelt. And so 
we see now a second confession made by Israel in verse 15, where it says, Then the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. In their earlier confession, uh, sorry, if their earlier confession was made on their feet uh, or while they were seated, this second confession is made on the knees with their face to the ground. Israel has abandoned themselves to the Lord's justice. They say, do to us whatever seems best to you. This is complete surrender. And this is the work the Lord wanted to achieve in their lives. And this is the work that the Lord wants to achieve in our lives. To take away the superficiality of our service to him and bring us to a place of complete surrender where we are abandoned to his will being done in our lives. This is the work that had been done in Paul's life. He'd come to that place of complete surrender. And that's why he says in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And it is at this point of complete surrender that Israel's only hope is the Lord. Only deliver us this day, we pray. This is not a prayer expecting deliverance. This is a prayer sincerely seeking mercy. A work has been done in the heart of that nation. And so we read on in verse 16. So they put away the foreign gods and from among them and served the Lord. And his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. You know, John the Baptist challenged the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Matthew 3 verse 8, where he, he said, you need to bear fruits worthy of repentance. And this is exactly what we see here in Israel's conduct. Their actions match their repentance as they put away their false gods and idols. And there should always be an evidential change in a person's life when they have sincerely repented. Just because somebody has responded to an altar call or made some professional faith is not a guarantee of salvation. Has there been an evidential change in their life? Have they borne fruit worthy of repentance? And has that fruit proved to be enduring fruit? And the reason I ask that question, has it been enduring fruit, is because anyone can show a pretense of a life change for a season in their own strength. But it is only a person who is sincerely repentant and has had that changing work of God wrought in their life and been filled with the spirit that will demonstrate fruit that endures, that lasts. In my own life, I have known people who have been counted among those who are redeemed for a year or two. But over time, their lives have not borne the evidence of lasting fruit. They have eventually exchanged the glory of Christ for the world or another religion. I do believe that assurance of salvation is a legitimate fruit of salvation and internal security in salvation is a legitimate fruit of salvation. But a person who is saved, and I do believe that a person who is saved cannot lose their salvation. But the question is, are they genuinely saved in the first place? The real test is whether they have enduring fruit. And see how the tenderness of the Lord's heart yearns for his people. When he says, and his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. 
This is a heart of compassion as he looks upon his, his, uh, his wife again. And this reminds me of the time that Joseph broke down in front of his brothers. He had gone to great pains to make sure that their repentance was genuine. But when he saw the pain and godly sorrow in his brothers, he shut out all the Egyptian servants and he wept aloud as he revealed his true identity. And likewise, when God saw the pain and godly sorrow in Israel, his heart could not help but be overwhelmed. And from here, the Lord begins to move to save his people. And we'll see that work of salvation carried out in the next couple of chapters. But the account in chapter 10 finishes with an epilogue, which is also an introduction to chapter 11. It says in verses 17 and 18, Then the people of Ammon gathered together and encamped in Gilead, and the children of Israel assembled together and encamped in Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So the chapter ends on a cliffhanger. The Ammonites gather like they have done for 18 successive years before. And once more, they are ready to attack and to harass the Israelites. The clouds are gathering. The storm is about to be unleashed. But this time, there is a ray of light shining through the clouds. Something new is occurring. The armies of Israel are gathered a few miles northeast in a place called Mizpah. And for the first time in a long time, there is hope in the ranks. And as we walk the line of troops, their feet shuffling, their weapons at their side, the pensive look on each man's face, the cry goes out, who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? We'll find the answer to that question next time. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help our repentance to be genuine and to be deep and to be heartfelt. Lord, we pray that we would bear fruit in keeping with repentance, fruit that endures. And I pray, Father God, that you'd help us to be people that demonstrate the characteristics of Tola and Jair, who were faithful servants of men, who served you faithfully. In Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>